Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Show. Today I am sitting down with Frank Holmes. He's an investing legend. I'm super excited to sit down and talk with him. He is the CEO of US Global Investors, a billion dollar fund. Um, really a lot of focus on precious metals. He's won multiple awards, I think he can tell us, but uh, more, more awards, more gold awards than anybody else. Um, he's regularly on, on TV, CNBC, Fox, Kitco News, et cetera. Um, someone I've been following for a really long time. And of course, you know, I always love to try and get as much as I can from people like Frank. So I appreciate Frank uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Mark. Yeah. So um, like I said, I've been following you. I, I see you around. I, I look at your predictions and what, what your fund is investing in. Um, and I gave you a short little intro, but for those that don't know who you are, just give us a little bit of background um, about precious metals and your fund and stuff. Well, Mark, I'm uh, originally a, a Canadian, so I've been living here 30 years, so I'm a Tex-Can. Y'all come <laughs> back, eh? Uh, and, and so that experience in Canada is Toronto is something like 60% of all mining finance in the world. And it's a real strong hub. And that helped me coming down to Texas, buying control of U.S. Global, and repositioning it so it just wasn't a gold complex of no load funds that it was also in first to go into eastern europe fund uh, first to go into a china region fund uh, so trying to be a pioneer but being first where we see big macro forces taking place uh, we created the eastern european fund because we saw the eu uh, being created and the euro being created and we said this will be an un unleashing of all this intellectual capital and and trillions of dollars and it won. You know, basically, that fund went from four, $4 million uh, up to uh, over a billion dollars in assets. Wow. Uh, that, that's good. Um, I, I mentioned briefly, so, so you said that you kind of took it from just, just a gold-only fund and you've kind of grown that. Um, but I did kind of mention briefly that you've won a bunch of gold awards. I know like Mining Man of the Year, um, some things like that. I mean, you've really been involved in the gold space though a lot. Well, I've been so blessed that Growing up in Canada, and Toronto in particular, and having mentors like Pierre Lasson, who created the GLD when he was the uh, honorary chairman of the World Gold Council, uh, Seymour Schulich, the biggest philanthropist in Canada, those two guys put together and created Franco Nevada, the largest gold royalty company in the world. Uh, I took that company public in 83. It was my first deal. Wow. So being mentored by these thought leaders, I'm very blessed. And, and then knowing the whole from junior exploration up to senior production. Uh, Barrick, uh, Newmont, all these stocks in Canada at one time, we were the primary market makers where you put up capital the old days on the floor of the stock exchange for all the gold stocks. So I have a long-term relationship with, with this industry. Wow. That is, uh, that is, I mean, those, those are the giants. I mean, Barrick is the company that, that uh, Warren Buffett just invested into. Um, what, what Do you have any opinions or any thoughts on that? I know a lot of people were shocked he entered gold. I made a video, well, he didn't just buy gold, he bought a gold company. Uh, what do you think about him buying into Barrick? Well, I, I think he's, he was, all, I guess, missing all the action. But I think the formal experience he was going through was by his investment team saying, it's just unprecedented this money printing. And I've been talking about the G20 financial cartel. Uh, the finance ministers and the central banks of the G20 countries meet on a regular basis and they don't care who the prime minister or president is, they have their own network and fighting this invisible war called the coronavirus, they're all collectively shoulder by shoulder printing money by the trillions. And, and, and that is basically a key factor 
for all commodities, and in particular gold as an asset class. He does believe in buying production. So what does he buy? I always thought if you looked at just financial metrics, Newmont's more attractive than Barrick. However, Mark Briscoe is a CEO, and I was a seed shareholder of creating his company, Rand Gold, uh, over 20 years ago. Mark Bristol's a PhD in platinum. Mark Bristol's a guy's guy. He likes to go hunting. He likes to, <laughs> he used to go to South Texas on a regular basis. Uh, but he's a very smart guy and he has a big time vision. So I can see Buffett betting on the jockey in addition to the horse because he's really focused on free cash flow yield. And Newmont is now free cash flow yield. Uh, and any of those companies that really focus on building free cash flow yield are getting buyers outside of the gold arena like Warren Buffett. And they're seeing the generals coming to buy those stocks. Yeah. Now, uh, for everybody that's listening, um, Frank is, uh, he's already filled you in on his background. I mean, he's, 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 he's the guy in this space. So I do want to nail you down on uh, kind of where you see the gold price going. Um, and then I want to drill down past like gold price and we'll get into better ways to play gold, talk about gold mining stocks and stuff like that. So for everybody listening, make sure you stay tuned because we are going to get into some of those uh, specifics. Um, but I want to just spend a little bit of time on what you just said and really the bigger picture, like the catalysts that are pushing this forward. And so before we get into those kind of specifics, we'll talk about your big thinking. And I know I've seen some of your videos and, and your fund is kind of like this macro fund. And I watched one of your talks where you were talking about uh, these, you know, a top down approach and these like five major factors that, that you look at for this top down approach. Um, and I know you just mentioned the banking cartels, inflation being one of those. Tell us how that, that framework work, works for you. Well, in the laws of physics, you know, force is equal to MA. And M is mass, and how fast is that mass accelerating is a force. So when we look at GDPs or consumers, we can take China and India, actually known as Chindia, and they're 40% of the world's population. That's 40% of the mouths to feed. That's 40% of the consumers of the world. So that becomes a macro consumption force. When we look at global trade, it's China and America. Collectively, we're 40% of all global trade. So when we have a spat with China and America, then naturally it's going to impact, uh, it's a global force. Now we're seeing the PMIs of these countries turn up. We're seeing the sword rattling of, uh, between China and America actually slow down compared to 18 months ago. Uh, and I think that this is another factor that is very positive for the overall global commodity demand. China is 53% of commodity demand, very important. If we look at China and India and Southeast Asia, or just actually, sorry, China and India alone, they are 53% of all gold demand for love. Wow. So when we add jewelry as, as a dimension of love, so we would say that 60% of all gold demand is love, 40% is fear, and that 40% of fear is excessive money printing, and negative real interest rates. So when you say love, you're saying people are buying it because they love it, meaning like jewelry. Like, oh, I love gold, I love gold jewelry, I'm buying it. And then the fear, the 40% fear, uh, using it as I kind of talk about like a hedge, right? A chaos hedge, I'm, I'm using it as insurance for my portfolio. Currency debasement, hedge, you're right, absolutely. And that, by the way, Mark, is what Ray Dalio talks about. And he has the largest hedge fund in the world, uh, over $160 billion, and he always has a position in gold. And I've 
basically try to position people to recognize that the 10% golden rule is make sure you always have 10% in gold and you rebalance once a year or once a quarter. Uh, and I think that this is an important thesis. When I try to talk, to, watch the CNBCs, most of the time they're negative on gold. But in the past 20 years, did you know that gold's been up 80% of the time? Wow. I didn't know that. So, and, and if we looked at some of my favorite royalty companies like Franco Nevada, in the past 10 years, it's more than doubled Berkshire Hathaway. If I look at gold since the year 2000, it's outperformed the S&P by three times. 300, you know, there's a huge number difference. So having a position in gold is actually wise and rational. Yeah. I talked about recently, and I think I got it from Rick Rule, but he was just talking about how um, the, the, the allocation to gold, you know, maybe historically was like one and a half, two percent, but it's really come down to like less than half a percent. Um, but then we saw that the Ohio Pension Fund a couple of weeks ago said they're going to put five percent in. Um, and imagine if everyone just put one percent. Do you see something similar like that? Like it's really the allocations have come down, but you think they'll come back up? I do think they'll come back up. And it happens as long as the secular bull market, which started in January of 2019, that is the 50-day average price over the 200-day moving average, uh, it can fall up and below the 50-day. But as long as that 50-day trend is above the 200, it's a secular bull market. Uh, and the first to do this was the state of Texas. Texas built their own vault, and they moved all their gold out of New York City uh, back to Texas. So I think you're going to see other pensions look at that because most of the pensions have a big bond portfolio and a lot of them used to buy tips as a proxy, but actually buying gold and trading around gold is a better proxy, I think, than overall just buying bonds. It seems like, um, so uh, it seems like, you know, as the um, inflation continues to go up and then the rate of, of return you know, on bonds goes down, especially like treasuries and whatnot, I mean, maybe we're almost into, well, we're definitely into a real negative return right? Um, so it almost makes sense to just hold gold. Like why pay, why lose money holding treasuries when I can just hold gold? I mean, is that a big driver for funds? I think so. I think you're going to see that grow. Uh, and, and, you're, and what's also witnessing in the past uh, three years is a big increase on new central banks buying gold. Right. Uh, I thought it was interesting 18 months ago, Colombia, the, the country of Colombia bought gold. And then they recently had to sell because they needed the cap to, to deal with the slow down the economy, the coronavirus, but actually, if you love your country, you should have gold because yeah. it's a way when a crisis happens to get to be able to live off of. Yeah. So you talked about the love and the, and the fear. It seems to me it's really not the love that's probably driving the market. It's probably more the fear. You talked about the G20 banking cartel. I mean, their policies are forcing everybody into other assets out of currencies. Is, do you see that being the driver? Well, what's important, Mark, well, you, as I mentioned to you, that 20% of the time, gold has been up since the year 2000, sorry, 80% of the time since the year 2000. Right. But why is that? Because the love trade each year is taking more gold out. As their GDP per capita of China and India is rising, they buy more gold. Right. If you go back 30 years ago, China and India were only 10% of the global gold demand. Now they're 53%. Mm. Uh, so, and it's highly correlated to GDP per capita. So what it means is that when markets golds fall, it's going to have a higher low to it. And then along comes the money printing and the fear and it makes a new higher high. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've had a lot of people, cause I talk about gold quite a bit on my channel and I've, I've had some comments that say, well, gold's back to its all time high. It's too expensive now. 
But I'm like, well, but the cycle's just starting and we're at it, right? Uh, so I guess, is that what you're seeing? So even though it did beat its new all-time high, um, it's at the beginning of a cycle and not the end of a cycle like it was in 2011? It is. You know, and I write on, my, on our website, usfunds.com, I have a, a whole set of articles called Managing Expectations. And Warren Buffett had the great line. He said, if you want to have a, a long-lasting marriage, you have low expectations. So everything <laughs> is on the upside. Right. And, uh, and so I always got to chuckle with his, his sort of his sage advice. But manage expectations and understand the volatility. So the DNA of gold's volatility, billion, is the same as the S&P 500. Over one day or 10 days or 60 days, it's the same. But most people talk negatively about gold as it's more volatile. It's not. The gold stocks are more volatile. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Now, um, I've seen a couple of your calls. You, uh, it looks like you've been calling for uh, a $4,000 gold price. Um, is that still what you're seeing? And is that because of this G20, these banking cartels and the massive money printing along with India, as you've already described? I mean, is that kind of what you're seeing, the $4,000 price? Look up. That's where Guys, the limit? Well, you just take a look at what happened in 2008-9, where the the Federal Reserve Bank uh, basically strapped on, I think, $3 trillion. Uh, And then three years later, we see gold hitting $1,900. It was trading between $700 and $800. It goes to $1,900. If we look at the amount of money printing today and what we see in the EU and Japan, uh, one would can easily forecast gold to go to 4,000. It, it would not be out of the cards. If you, by the way, use that CPI number that was used in 1980, uh, gold's over 7,000. Yeah. So I, I think that being 4,000 over the next three years is not, you know, hysteria or, uh, or BS. Yeah. I've, and I've actually said, uh, I, I've actually said higher and I, I'm definitely not a legend like you are, but um, you know, you look at, you know, in 2008, you know, gold dropped along with stocks, dropped about 25% down to about 680. And then it rallied to over 1900 based off of that stimulus. It was the reaction the Fed did that drove it back up. And I've said that if we got the same size move um, from 680 to 2000, this time it would push gold to about 5,000. But as you just made the case, as, as I've made the case, the stimulus that the government d- did this time is way bigger than last time. So we're talking about just the same size move. But if it's two or three times bigger, then it could easily overshoot that. Yes. And I said in 10 years, that could be 10,000. Yeah. I think it's very fair and reasonable. Yeah. Now, uh, I do want to just jump back into what you said about the CPI. So for those that aren't really familiar with what that is, it's the Consumer Price Index. And so um, you probably know if you've been watching this channel, the Fed is always trying to push inflation. They want 2%, 2%, 2%. We won't dig into why, but um, they're stating that they can't get the inflation. And they look at something called the CPI, Consumer Price Index, to look for that inflation. They're not seeing it. But I know, Frank, you did a video recently and you talked about how that CPI is wrong and the numbers wrong. you want to tell us about that real quickly? Well, if you use the algorithm or the, the model that they used in 1980 to say inflation was running at 18 to 20% uh, and gold hit 850 and silver $50 an ounce and Paul Volcker came in and took interest rates of 20% to stop it. If, if you looked at that model and you used it today, it, it would suggest that inflation is eight to 9%. Yeah. So I'm, a, and I look at housing prices just came out the data points. They're up 10% year over year. 
Yeah. So what is that telling you? That there is this, that's inflation. Yep. Uh, and, and I look at my uh, legal bills. I look at uh, property taxes. Uh, they're not going up at 1.3% or 2%. No. Yeah. I mean, and I think everybody knows that. I mean, the Fed, the Fed's telling us there's no inflation, but education's way up. Uh, healthcare is out, is through the roof. Uh, where I live, I think homes are like 30% up in, in a year. Um, and so we're seeing that even, even meat steaks is up, milk is up. I mean, everything's up. So uh, people know that. And so they just keep changing this goalpost, um, which I guess if we understand the game, maybe that's our edge a little bit. Absolutely. And if you can get a cheap mortgage and, and buy a, a great property, this is the time to do it. As I'm a big believer. If you have the, the income that the bank's going to allow you to do it, their ratios, whatever, but uh, it's cheap money. And, and, it's, and you're borrowing money below the, I believe, is the real CPI number. Yeah. Now, what about, um, you talked about China, Chindia, as you called it, uh, but, but specifically with China, you talked about the trade wars and whatnot. And uh, you also mentioned that um, we saw the central banks buying a massive amount of gold. Um, I think most people that have been following gold know that China has been accumulating massive amounts of gold. Um, you know, they, they allow a lot of mining, they don't allow it to leave the country, etc. Um, I think I heard you talking about somewhere at some point, maybe even China trying to back it's currency with gold. Have you, have you talked about that or thought about that? Well, that was a big push by the Saudis for oil, that there'd be some type of a collateral. Otherwise, they're going to take U.S. dollars. Uh, and and I, I just think that was a lot of positioning. Um, but there's no doubt there is a move by uh, Russia and China to, to basically derail that the global currency, U.S. dollar, and then all those transactions have to go through New York City, uh, and therefore, it makes it much more powerful on catching uh, bad, bad characters. Uh, I, I think that they want to have something else for trade. But it'll take a while before they can really derail the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think, too. I mean, the dollar is just too strong right now. So, um, I it's mean. It's that strong, you know, against the euro short term, uh, which I think is a farce. But what we have and what people have to really respect in America and love is we have common law and common law means that we have private property rights. Uh, and in most of these other civil law countries, uh, you don't have the ability to have a debate in court and a fight to pr protect your private property. It could be your blog, it could be your song, it could be your music, it could be your land. But this is so important that you do not have it in other countries. So this common law thesis, uh, along with the uh, sort of rule of law, is the strongest military in the world. And, and those two factors are really important to have a strong currency. Wow, Frank, that is such an important piece that I would just, I hope everybody just grasps that. And I would, I would encourage everyone to dig into that a little bit because um, that is what makes this country or, or has made this country so great and, and get to where it is because of private property rights. Private property rights are the underpinnings of freedom. And uh, when you look at other countries, they just don't have that. And, uh, Man, we could really dig into that, uh, but we're not going to. But I would encourage everyone to maybe to go do a little bit of research into that because uh, it's super important, especially right now, because um, there's a changing tide happening in this country and uh, a lot of people on the left aren't really happy with private property anymore. So um, it's important to understand that and we'll leave it at that um, unless you have anything else to add. <laughs> no, that's true. It's, it's a long discussion, but yeah. I, I do think it's really important to love what makes America great is, is rule of law. 
Yeah. And, and you know, it, for me, it was fascinating last year going to the Senate and Congress uh, and, and being there. And what do you see when the president is speaking and looking up, which we don't see, is a painting of Moses and the Ten Commandments for rule of law, the concept. Uh, and it's just so important to recognize that's what allows a culture, a uniqueness to develop uh, as, as it makes this country nothing else can compete with it. Yeah, I mean, because we need, uh, we need a level playing field, which unfortunately we're starting to see the rule of law not being met. But again, we'll, we'll table that for now. But um, back to the gold. So, I mean, I was saying that we could see based off of the stimulus and what happened in 2008-9, we could see it back to 5,000. You're saying 4,000. So, of course, you know, buying gold at 2,000 and doubling your money is not, not, a, bad, not a bad thing, especially when um, other assets could be falling down. But as you mentioned, the gold stocks are much more volatile. Um, I talk about gold stocks a lot. Um, so volatile meaning we have way more upside. There's also more downside. Um, how do you look at gold stocks uh, for your for your fund and for your investments? Well, one of the things I became frustrated with, frustrated with, with the GDXJ, uh, and basically money goes into that by just billion dollars, and it goes into bad stocks and good stocks. And so I created my own ETF called Gold Gold. And basically this best business model in this gold space are royalty companies. The three big amigos are Franco Nevada, Wheat and Precious, and Royal Gold. They're 30% of this. The other 70%. Our 25 names, I, I basically focus on metrics that if these CEOs screw it up, they're out. And, and I'm looking for protection of my revenue per share growth, the last quarter of four quarters, the cash flow last quarter of four quarters, uh, free cash flow, uh, high cash flow returns on investor capital because all my back studies and research has shown where you have CEOs that focus on those metrics, those stocks outperform everybody else. Mm. And, and so I really focus on th that level and I can show that with math that those companies that have the greatest revenue per share growth over the past five years and cash flow along with it have been the best winners like Kirkton Lake. Yeah. Yeah, I love what you just said there because I, as I talk about gold stocks, I talk about for myself, I mean, I don't have the, uh, the experience and, and that you do for sure. But what I do is I try to look at the team because I figure like good teams don't go to bad projects. Um, and so if I start with a good team, then I can dig into the other stuff. And what you're saying is the best teams are the ones that focus on those numbers. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you just have to be able to have discipline. So there's 100 global gold producers around the world. There's about 75 of them in North America uh, from little micro caps up. And, uh, and we just focus on those that this basket of tightness. And if you just bought the 10 stocks with the highest revenue per share growth year over year, each quarter, kicked out the ones when they fell below, you beat every index. So, but once you start getting over 25 names, then you end up becoming an index. So you have to stay focused on what you're picking. And uh, there's a few stocks that like one of the great turnarounds from three years ago uh, was a company called Grand Columbia. And, uh, and they were sort of got, got the religion that they have to focus on profit margin, uh, revenue for growth and cash flow. And this is a company that owed $45 million in short-term obligations and then took it to $150 million in the bank. So wow. well, gold went up, they became very structured and disciplined. They piled the cash up in their balance sheet. Uh, and, and this is, to me, is one of those great stock stories. And the stock went up at one time sevenfold during this run for us. 
and, and so now I look at any of those new companies come along that they have to have that discipline. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely have to have the discipline. And, uh, one thing I actually, uh, Grand Columbia had just recently come onto my radar. I just talked about it. Um, one thing that I saw was how they, um, they had, it looked like they had a asset that wasn't really being valued and they were able to spin it off, which then gave it a lot more value, um, which then also brought the company is, is that kind of what happened? Yeah. It, I think we look at the math that, um, 5% of the production came from the Ramato Mountain, and, uh, and it, it's a huge deposit, uh, and it needed over $150 million of funding. Uh, and so what their thought process, it appears, was what South Africa used to do to de-risk the big mothership, which is Grand Columbia, high-grade operation that went from 90,000 to 250,000 ounces of gold production. This is a cash flow machine now throwing up $250 million of, of cash flow. Uh, and, and so do they turn around and put all their capital into this one new project or do they spin it out? So it had no value. They spun it out. Wheat and Precious comes along, gives the good housekeeping seal. They buy into the equity issue and they give a gold note and they bought uh, and give them a stream. So I like when whenever the major Franklin Nevadas and Wheaton give a, that good housekeeping seal, I like those juniors because our math says they usually outperform. Yeah. Uh, on other success analysis, like like sports game film analysis. So I think that Caldas is an interesting spin out. Now it's all of a sudden worth $250 million. It was nothing on their balance sheet. And we've seen other companies do something different in the royalty business. Like I have $8 million in my balance sheet of royalties going nowhere. I spin them out into a new royalty company. And all of a sudden I've got $50 million in my balance sheet of owning that new public royalty company. Right. Uh, we've seen Yamada do it, almost Gold do it. So I think uh, de-risking uh, the, the, the flagship of Grand Columbia uh, with this is a brilliant idea. Yeah, so um, back to kind of what I was saying where the good teams uh, – you know, I follow good teams because they can repeat success, right? They have the formula. So as you're saying, when you see a Franco or like in this case, uh, wheat and precious metals, when they come in um, and kind of give them that seal, like uh, put their money behind it, um, then that's just added encouragement. Like, hey, I'm onto something, but now that I see them jumping on board, like I feel even better about it. I guess that's what you're saying. Yes. And you know, it's real discipline because they don't get to give you a check and say, hey, go build a mine. It's almost like the money comes to you as you prove that you're buying caterpillars, you're buying equipment. It's very, it's, it has great processes like a financial institution has to have. Yeah. So their mechanism of funding and, and the ongoing process of releasing the money, uh, we know, and, and, and so do investors, that money is going to go right into building that mine. Uh, yeah. And so you're going to have this call, this is going to go from 24,000 to 160,000 ounce gold producer over the next five years. There's very few, that's not going to happen in Barrick. Merrick's not going to go from 5 million to 30 million ounce gold producer organically. They're going to have to turn around and acquire other people. So right. I think that, uh, that both those companies can go through a re-rating. Yeah, that's an important point. Um, uh, in, in my recent gold video, I talked about like the kind of different la layers of the gold mining industry from the, the large producers and the smaller producers, the explorers, et cetera. And obviously, um, as you work your way down, the, the greater risk and reward that are there. So when you go into the barracks or the Newmonts, you're, you're just not going to see that growth, but they're also safer. When you go in these smaller ones, um, they're riskier, but they have massive upside. So you just do like a risk adjusted kind of position size? Yes, we do. And you know what, for us, 
we are a big position in the Grand Columbia Gold Notes. Uh, they're listed in Toronto. Uh, they've been being redeemed now uh, throughout this uh, past couple of years. But this was a beautiful piece of paper because it was paying me eight and a quarter. I got paid on a monthly basis, eight and a quarter annualized. But anything over twelve fifty, I got a bonus payment. So gold runs to two thousand. My get, end up making fifteen percent rate of return on my money. Wow. So so my cash rather than holding cash in a fund, I've got this this gold asset always paying the NEB hardly moves, but I'm always getting this big payout. Beautiful. He called us, turned around, and did a similar raise. They raised close to $100 million on another gold note. The yield is slightly lower, seven and a quarter, and the price tag of getting higher output is a higher level. But still, when I look at the, the opportunity, if gold gold goes to 4,000, I'll make a 15 to 18% compound rate of return on that note. Wow. I need to get in some of those notes. <laughs> that sounds like, that's a, that's, what's the money going to, money fund going to pay you? You know, yeah. 10, two points here, I got to make seven and a quarter with something at gold and they're, and they're redeeming you. Nice asset. Yeah. I like that. I'm going to have to have to look into getting to that level. Now, um, um, okay, so then you talked about the ro- the royalty companies. They, the Wheaton is, came in and did the royalty on it, so they're like uh, guaranteeing funding as they stream it. Is that how that works? Yes, and that's what they do, Mark. And, and you know, it's also interesting um, their efficiency. So I've always said, why did Buffett buy uh, uh, Barrick? He didn't buy Franco Nevada, right? Uh, because Franco Nevada has the royalties on Newmont and Barrick's operations in Nevada. Mm, got it. And, and you know that the revenue per employee at the Nevada, at Newmont or Barracks operations around $600,000 of revenue per employee. At Franco Nevada, it's 24 million, the highest revenue per employee on the New York Stock Exchange. It's called, it's bigger than Goldman Sachs at a million. It's a very efficient ratio. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that when you have the intellectual capital that they have, small employees, all scientists, uh, rocket scientists in geology and, and metallurgy, et cetera, they go kick the tires of these operations. They go through all the, uh, all the feasibility studies. They ask a gazillion questions before they start releasing this money. So now this company is totally funded to take their production up. And I think each quarter will be positive for the growth in Grand, in Grand Columbia and also particular now to call this. Yeah. Now, when you talk about, uh, as you just did, you mentioned they're, you know, on one of the best companies, more uh, big revenue on the New York Stock Exchange. So when you talk about the Francos, the Barracks, they're on those exchanges. But when you dig into the Grand Columbias and the Caldas, those are just like penny stocks, right? Those are just over the counter. And, you know, and over time, they'll eventually get listed there. You know, Rand Gold was, was basically an RTO into Barrick. And Rand Gold is one of the best explorers and developers and producers in West Africa. And, and um, Mark Bristol, Dr. Mark Bristol did a phenomenal job. So you see that in, in his migration, then he went on NASDAQ and then he gets listed in New York. So there's a migration here. So for, I would think that Grand Columbia by this time next year will be listed on NASDAQ uh, or New York Stock Exchange. And you know if they do that, they'll get a much higher rating much more quickly because clearly the US is still where you have the rule of law, you have the biggest capital market structure, uh, and you have these pockets like millennials coming in at an unprecedented rate. I saw the last time in the 90s in the mutual fund world that now they're coming into the ETF world and individual stocks. 
Yeah. Now, and I think it's also just a kind of just shows how small this space is. I talked about it on my video I did about Warren Buffett buying in where, you know, he, he bought like a, like he barely took any of his funds and he took a big chunk out of Barrick. And uh, this space is just tiny for these types of players. And so I think is it, I mean, it is tiny, right? And that's why a lot of these are still just kind of penny stocks. Yeah. And I think when as gold rises and, and uh, free cash flow, that more management's focus on this free cash flow means higher dividends. The, the, the non or the generalist fund manager is going to start buying these names. I'll give you a classic, Mark. Uh, IBD, which only follows growth stocks, uh, it's happened all over again in 2002. It started happening. It's happened just this year. And the past quarter, all of a sudden, Franco Nevada shows up in the IBD best 50 stocks. Kirk and Lake is showing up in the best 50 stocks. So we're seeing that they have growth metrics like you're seeing uh, AMG or, your, or AMD or uh, NVIDIA uh, is showing up there. So you're, this is a game changer. And as long as these companies uh, demonstrate uh, high cash flow returns on capital, they're going to grow and their market caps are going to rise. Yeah. And as investors, we're always looking for the early, the early entries, the, the undervalued assets. So that's our opportunity there. Um, I'm curious about um, where these mines are actually located. One big narrative that seems, uh, I get asked this question probably 20 times on every gold video I do, is uh, this big narrative about uh, danger, 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 mines that are not in U.S. swap line countries. I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, is there any, is there, is there any, uh, any truth to that? Do you worry about that? Is that something no. like, okay, that's a risk, but I kind of know what that is? You know, it's a great question because I used to populate the data of an ounce of gold around the world in different countries in the public market. And you could see that an ounce of gold in Kazakhstan was really cheap for a reason. No rule of law. Uh, the assets started going to production. Uh, the, the government would find a way to steal your asset. It's ongoing. But the market was pretty, pretty good at figuring out what an ounce of gold in the ground is worth in different jurisdictions. But if you ask the former CEO of, of Rio Tinto, he's um, on the board of Franco Nevada. If you ask uh, the former CEOs, Ameri both Americans uh, for Anglo uh, Gold, uh, they're going to tell you that some of their biggest disasters were in the U.S. with the EPA. So, okay. uh, you know, the environmental movement can be a big factor of risk. But what happens so often in these other countries is that it's better priced. Uh, that an ounce of gold in different countries. So if you have um, uh, a socialist or, or Chavez came in and basically destroyed Venezuela, and immediately the, the an ounce of gold started falling quickly, any public company that an ounce of gold in Venezuela, it came cheap for a reason. Uh, but Colombia, you know, Colombia is more socialist in, in a lot of the polit political push that they have in the media, et cetera. But it's been a very strong nation in, in sort of protecting um, companies and uh, trying to attract capital. There is a free trade agreement with Canada. There's a free trade agreement with the U.S. Uh, so I think that it's a lot less riskier than uh, a country like Venezuela. Mm, I love that answer. And so it goes back to kind of what we talked about already. These smaller producers are more risky. And so you want to manage your risk with your position sizes. Um, there are risks there, and but it's cheaper. So you're, you're managing it that way. But also there's risks even in the US. And so uh, there's always risk. Look at Grand Columbia. It trades at three times cash flow. 
The industry of the 75 North American, South American producers we follow trade at 13 times. Wow. So, okay, it shouldn't trade. It's going to get a re-rating. It's just a matter of time. And that re-rating can take it easy where it can get a double rating and the stock can double and still be uh, economically more attractive than many other companies. And they just had a dividend policy. So they're one of those classic emerging gold producer that has free cash flow and they just started paying a dividend. Hmm. Wow. Get in, get in, as I just said, if I get on those notes or if you can get a dividend on, on a gold stock, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing thing to do. So, um, yeah, I know, I know your fund specifically has, has institutional size investments in those companies, Grand Columbia and Caldas. So, uh, definitely worth somebody checking out. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Uh, something I ask everybody that I sit down with because uh, I'm a huge uh, believer in new technology. And I know you've talked about technology in some of your other posts. Um, and I always want to ask, especially gold people, what they think about Bitcoin. Now, typically, I'm just going to tell everybody before you answer, typically, uh, most gold people I've asked this question to don't have that big of an answer. But you do. You're heavily involved in Bitcoin. So tell us about that. My journey was I was trying to create an ETF, and I quickly learned at $1,000 an hour legal bills that it just wasn't going to happen. The SEC in the U.S., uh, OSC in Canada, they are so fearful of uh, anti-money anti laundering laws that some hacker gets Bitcoin and shows up at an ETF or New York Stock Exchange or Toronto. So it was a cul-de-sac you're driving down. It's a dead end. So with that, I had all this knowledge, and friends of mine in Vancouver said, you know, there's a speculative idea of mining these coins. I said, well, mining virgin coins, wow. When you validate a transaction in cyberspace, you basically get paid in a brand new coin, and it has nothing. It's clean. It's spotless. It's actually worth more, and therefore, you have no AML problems. So I took my capital and said, okay, let's launch the first industrial-scale crypto mining company, and all of a sudden, a billion dollars came into Canada, and all these other mining started coming in. But Hive had the first mover advantage, and Hive is the most liquid name. Uh, and and uh, we are also the biggest in Ethereum. Ethereum is going to be the backbone. Bitcoin, to me, is going to become like Andy Warhol art uh, over time, where it, it, whereas Ethereum is a smart contract, and uh, any new ICOs are all based on that algorithm or what they call DFI, decentralized financing. Uh, they're all based on that, back, that backbone. So I remain very bullish and constructive and Hive has become a proxy for that investor that wants to own a crypto, but they're afraid to go and buy an exchange and hear that their account was hacked. So they bought Hive. Institutions like Fidelity start off and help us out with $100 million of building up these facilities. We mine only with cheap green energy. We're in Sweden, we're in Iceland, and we're in Quebec, Canada. Yeah. I was, was Hive uh, one of the first, if not the first, like uh, publicly listed like blockchain crypto company? Yes. And, and it went from a $30 million seed round to a billion dollars in market cap. You know, um, I, I love this. And I just want to hit this point home because um, I talk about Bitcoin a lot and I talk about gold a lot. In my opinion, gold and Bitcoin are both fighting the same war hard sound money against inflation, against runaway printing, right? So I believe gold and Bitcoin are both fighting the same war. And I talk about both, but like no matter which one I'm talking about, I get people that comment that say, ah, I would never, only buy gold, I would never buy Bitcoin. Or only buy Bitcoin, I would never buy gold. 
But I'm like, as an investor, why? You're, our job is not to pick the one, right? Like we invest into multiple things. And obviously you see the same. Yeah, I, I see it as an alternative asset class. And, and, uh, and I think that if you have a virgin Bitcoin and it has a 64 digit character, it's going to become art. It's going to go up like an Andy Warhol painting uh, the multiple sets he had of, of, of Mao. And I think five, six different colors, a thousand of a thousand prints, give it a thousand dollars, and they went to a quarter million each. Yeah. Uh, and, and so with that, I think that that's what's going to happen with the Bitcoin. Whereas I think the Ethereum and that protocol and some of the other ones are going to become more important uh, as, as the crypto space evolves. But we're seeing today in Switzerland better laws for the crypto respecting it. You're seeing um, Europe is talking about the head of the IMF of coming up with a digital money. Uh, and, and I thought it was very funny that crypto surged to 19,000 for Bitcoin and then the crash came just with the futures market, was able to suppress it. And JP Morgan knocked Bitcoin every day, every week until February of 2019, just when gold's golden cross took place, JP Morgan came up with their own digital stable coin. Of course. And then they stopped the trash talk and then you start seeing a new evolution taking place in the crypto ecosystem. So um, I didn't plan this question, but uh, you've been you've been uh, forthcoming and said you see gold getting to four thousand. Do you have any ideas? Do you do you think Bitcoin gets to fifty thousand at some point? You know, it's it has to do with Metcalf's law, and that's an important law that 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 they use to when when anything goes viral. Uh, it can happen as long as there's an exponential growth in people looking and talking about it. Um, and I think what will happen is, a, will the Robin Hoods be able to give you fractions like they are, a fraction of a share, and you can get one share of Amazon or Tesla? Are they going to give you those fractals? Uh, then that will basically allow that to take place. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if Berkshire Hathaway can go to a quarter million a share, then uh, why can't Bitcoin go to 50000 yeah, I see. I, see. I mean, I, I, I did a video on how it gets to 100000 easily and you just figure, I mean, if, if I'm buying it as for the same reason as gold, getting money out of the banking system and gold's worth $10 trillion, or there's 30 to $40 trillion in offshore bank accounts, which is the same thing, get it out of the banking system, 30 to $40 trillion there, there's $10 trillion over there, like it couldn't get a few percent of that? Like it, it can get there pretty quickly, but. Um, and I, I think what's important for, for your listeners is the ecosystem. Uh, when you talk to crypto kids, you know, they, they talk about this ecosystem and how Bitcoin then came Ethereum. Ethereum has 30,000 uh, kids around the world are part of that ecosystem. And, and I'll give you a classic is there was they discovered where someone was hacked and they came in and stole some of the coins. Uh, the, the, these kids came in and took the rest of the coins and then put them in a safety deposit box and told people how to come and validate to get them. They do it free. Uh, there are a, I'm talking to one of the original Ethereum uh, coders. Uh, he was into the green movement. And then all of a sudden from there as a coder, he left going to green. He went over to crypto world. But there's 30,000 working free basically around the world. Yeah. Uh, validating the transactions, validating the software. Uh, then there's other entities that are getting paid for developers, etc. So you don't see that for junior mining, 30,000. Uh, so I think it's, we have to really, for me, is respect 
that the, the emotional and intellectual capital that's behind this industry, that it will evolve and these coins will, like Ethereum, Bitcoin trade higher. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that is so much uh, information that you share with us. I really appreciate that. I love, I love your perspective that you can see gold and Bitcoin at the same time. Like I said, most people can't. So uh, appreciate that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up with that. I know you, uh, I know we need to keep it short here, um, but I, I really appreciate the time that you've given us so much. And uh, I just love to learn as much as I can. Success leaves clues, I tell everybody. And so I'm trying to just You're suck as much. Time, Mark. Very, very kind. And it was great. You have wonderful questions to ask. Uh, so you keep me on my toes. Keep going. <laughs> All right, Frank. Uh, now, um, I, I, real quickly, um, you do write a newsletter. And I think you said you, there's like 50,000, 60,000 people on that newsletter. Uh, where would people go find you if they want to keep up with that? Go to usfunds.com and look up Frank Talk. Okay, Frank Talk. U.S. funds. Okay. And so for anybody listening, um, I am going to go ahead and link to it in the show notes so you can find that as well. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks so much, Frank. I appreciate your time. Happy investing, my friend.